Uh, good morning, church family. Lord be with you. Stand up on your feet this morning if you're able to. The psalmist said, when I awake, I'm still with you. When I awake, I'm still with you. You know what that means? It means that there are times that we lapse out of our awareness of God's presence, like when we fall asleep or we get distracted in the middle of the day or we got stuff going on and we kind of forget about God. But the psalmist says, when I awake, I'm still with you. It's like we lapse out of God's presence sometimes, but God never lapses out of our presence. <laughs> That's such good news. It means that whenever we're ready to, we can just turn our attention to God, turn our affection to God. And so this morning, church, as we prepare our hearts for worship, I want you now just to begin to turn your attention to God. And you can just lift up your hands just like this and begin to stretch out towards the Lord. Open up the gates of your heart to God. You might be saying this morning, Andrew, I have so little faith. I'm not sure if I can believe in any of these things. But even if we have the beginning of a desire in our hearts for God, that already is faith. And so I want you this morning now just to locate your desire for God because the truth is that we have so many appetites, hungers, and thirsts for so many different things. But beneath all of the hunger of our life, beneath all of the thirst of our life, beneath all of the, the agony and the ache of our life is an ache for God. And we're thirsty and we're hungry and we're dissatisfied until we have God. And so church, just stretch out towards God. I mean, like lift your hands as high as you can. Like get your body into it this morning, right into the heavens. And I want you to pull in deep drafts of air and know that as you're doing that, that you're pulling in the goodness of God. That you're pulling in the beauty of the Lord. That you're pulling in the kindness of God. And so we say to you, oh God, that our hearts are restless until we rest in you. And we have not come this morning to play any kind of church. And we have not come this morning to put on a show but we have come because we are hungry. We have come because we're thirsty for God and we will be dissatisfied until we have God. So we say, come and take that hunger and make it even sharper in us and take that thirst for you and make it even sharper in us and take that ache and that agony and that longing for you and make it even greater in us. And then we pray that you would satisfy us fully with the gift of your presence we pray this morning that you would draw us out into deep waters, that you would drown us in the love of God. So come, church, would you just pray, come Holy Spirit. Say it, church, say, come Holy Spirit. We're saying, oh God, open up the windows of the heavens. We're saying, rip the roof off this place. We're gonna give you our best this morning. We pray that you would give us your best. And we pray that somehow there would be an interaction, an encounter with the living God, an exchange, oh God. We're sending up to you all of our brokenness and all of our weariness and all of our sorrow. And we're praying that you would pour out oil and gladness, the oil of joy instead of mourning, garments of praise instead of a spirit of despair. And we believe that the anointing breaks the yoke. So we pray, break every yoke this morning, break every chain. And may we worship you without fear in holiness and righteousness all our days. Grant it, we pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, let's worship. Oh, we worship you, Lord. Come on, church, sing. I count on one thing. 
same God that never fails will not fail me now. You won't fail me now in the waiting. The same God is never late. It's working all things out. You're working on Come on, sing it. Yes, I will lift you high in the lowest valley. Yes, I will bless your name. Worship is a choice. Oh, church, speak to your soul this morning. Come on, sing it. I count on one thing. The same God that never fails will not fail me now. You won't fail me now in the waiting. There's faith rise up. Oh, it's working on. You're always working. I will lift you high in the lowest valley. Yes, I will bless your name. Yes, I will sing for joy when my heart is heavy all my days. Yes, I sing for all my days. Yes, I will. church lift up a shout of praise in the house of the Lord oh God you're good we choose to praise you Jesus oh spirit of God come just say that to yourself Holy Spirit come 
we welcome you, Jesus. Come and fill this place. We just sing church, we're waiting. We are waiting and we are watching. We won't move without you. We won't move without you. We are hoping, anticipating. We won't move without you. We won't move without you. Invite him today. Spirit of God, fall on us.
trust Jesus. He goes before you. He sees what he is doing.
there's some people here this morning, keep going, man, who feel like no one really knows what you're thinking. No one really knows where you're at. But Jesus is here today. The Holy Spirit is here today to encounter you where you are. In your mind, if you're intellectual and you're having a tough time feeling, Jesus can penetrate the dark, the, the hardness of your heart, of your mind. you open up your mind today. Jesus, you made us, you see us, you know us. You're the God of the impossible. you know yeah, Pastor Andrew come on you want to say something what if we tag team here I bet you got something good too I'm just feeling it this morning oh man I while we were worshiping I just kept thinking there are some of you in this room that you either you or somebody you know like somebody you love really deeply is just up against it like back against the wall and the psalmist said uh, psalmist said I called and you answered me that, that's the whole structure of biblical faith right there. I called, like I was in trouble. I couldn't do it. I'd exhausted all my resources. I tried everything. I did every play in the playbook. I called and you answered me. And if that's you this morning, I just feel like there's faith that needs to be released towards you. So if it's you or if it's somebody you love, and I felt so strongly about that because we are connected to people and that means that we can be interceded for vicariously. <laughs> We're representing all of those that we love in this room. So if that's you this morning, if it's either you or if it's somebody you love, that your back is just against the wall, it's like you need a breakthrough in the worst way. Is there nobody here who's got that? Yeah, somebody over here in the back, over here, a couple folks in the back. So if you're around any of these folks that have their hands lifted high, I want you to lay your hand on their shoulder, church family, and we know how to do this. We've done this so many times before. And let's begin now to release our faith. I'm not praying for you. You're praying this morning. 
I'm not praying for you, church. You're praying this morning. And so release your faith over all of these people. I need you to claim the promises over them. I need you to claim the promises in yourself as you pray. And Jesus says that whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So now bind all the things that need to be bound. Bind darkness, church. Bind fear, church. Bind lack, church. Bind sickness and disease, church. Bind relational fallout and chaos, church. And now loose, church. Loose the strength of the kingdom of heaven into all of your brothers and sisters here. We loose the power of God in Jesus' name. We loose the wisdom of God in Jesus' name. We loose the healing power of God in Jesus' name. We, le- we release provision in Jesus' name. Release. We release. We release. There it is. I called. Keep praying over your brothers and sisters, church.
Oh, what a gift to be in the presence of the Lord, in the presence of friends who are also doing the same thing. We're calling, we're all doing it, calling on the name of the Lord. Oh, and scripture is so clear, it says when we do that, oh, that God is, that he answers, not just answers, but he's also faithful and just. He can forgive us from, for all unrighteousness. Only God can do that. Only God has the power to forgive and to save. He's the one that we worship. Gather in places like this this morning. Oh, as our, as our worship time, as our music time of worship comes to a close, I want to remind us in this part of the service, we acknowledge that our gen- we, have, we have the ability to be generous because God has given so much to us. We give with our tithes and our offerings. The ways to give are on the screen. There are four ways. Thank you for your generosity. Your tithes don't just go to keep the lights on around here. They go to, to serve and care for our community. Thank you for your continued generosity. If we have not had a chance to meet, my name is Colin. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life East. We're one of eight congregations that worships, connects, and serves around the city. We're so glad that you've decided to join Sunday with us. If it's your first time with us, would you stop by Connect Central? We'd love to give you a gift. We'd love to meet you and tell you what is going on around here. Before we open the word and hear from Pastor Andrew, why don't you turn to one another and encourage somebody and say hello to somebody this morning. I invite you to find your seat this morning. Good to see you. I see another red flannel in the back over there representing the red flannels this morning. October 1st, fall is upon us. I don't really like fall, but I have to find the silver lining in it. Red flannel, decent silver lining. It's nice, but I've said this before. The reason I don't like fall is because summer is decisively gone and the Icy cold hand of death that we know as winter is right around to save us, Jesus, from all of our high cold. <laughs> and you answered. Good to see you this morning. If this is your first time with us, uh, my name is Andrew. I'm the lead pastor here. Joy to have you in our house this morning. Joy to be uh, just part of this community. And we've been, I was telling the volunteer group this morning, uh, we've been going on four years together as a church, which is incredible to think about. And uh, I'm so grateful for the depth of relationships. I'm so grateful for the strength of this house. I'm so grateful for the people that I get to serve with on a team, guys like Colin Stoddard and Jillian Lynn and Jamie Mendel over here leading worship and the whole crew. It's just such a joy. The psalmist said how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters live in unity. And we feel that. I'm going to be in the book of 1 Kings chapter 11 this morning. 
Uh, if you're sitting here, you were here last week, and you're like, but Rory preached 1 Kings 11 last week. Do you not think that more than one sermon can come out of one chapter of Scripture? And so I'm going to cover some territory um, that he did not quite explore, um, and he knows that, so it's not like me like doubling or being like, I'm making up for any mistakes. It's not anything like that. Um, so I'll be in 1 Kings chapter 11. Before I open the text of Scripture, uh, this morning, a couple announcements to pass your way. Uh, one is we have a couple retreats coming up that you've heard us talk about. So the women's retreat is coming up on October the 14th. That's a Saturday, so make sure you sign up for that. Is Becky Harling here this morning? Becky is leading that retreat uh, along with her good friend Linda Dillo, who's a published author and speaker. Going to be a really wonderful time. The price of that retreat is how many dollars? $30. So go ahead and sign up out in the lobby uh, after service for that. And then we also have space uh, on the men's retreat. So we're doing a joint men's retreat with several of the congregations here at New Life up at Golden Bell Ranch uh, up near Divide this coming weekend. And so I'm going to be there preaching on Friday night. Matthew Tistammer, who's one of our men's pastors, and Gabe Jenkins, who's another men's pastor, going to be preaching on Saturday. It's going to be a great time together of fellowship, teaching, worship, and then we've also built some solitude time in there just for you to kind of get away and clear your head. Enjoy the outdoors. We were just up near Divide yesterday, and the colors are beautiful. So hopefully it's not too windy this week and the colors hold on. But uh, i got to tell you, there are some of you, and I'm just going to, this is a gentle pastoral nudge to you. Uh, there are some of you that sometimes complain to us, like, it's so difficult to get connected. And so the, here are some retreats for you. Look, they're right in front of you. And so what you should do is you should sign up for them. And then if you choose not to, and you didn't have anything better or more pressing going on, don't come around and complain to us that it's difficult to get connected. <laughs> okay, great. Hallelujah. Amen. All right. First Kings chapter 11. We've been walking through this book here. David has handed the kingdom on to Solomon. Solomon has built up the kingdom. And uh, what we have seen over the last couple chapters is that despite the great might and the power of Israel, the big empire that has come together now, uh, there are some cracks that have begun to form in the foundation. And here in 1 Kings chapter 11, what seemed like little cracks in the foundation, like small causes for concern, all of a sudden they like, these like small things metastasize and they become very large matters that Israel will be reckon, reckoning with for generations. And so 1 Kings chapter 11, I'm going to start uh, in verse 4 to hear the word of the Lord. As Solomon, the scripture says, grew old, his wives, remember now he had started out, he married Pharaoh's daughter, but then as time went on, he started marrying all of these other women, and these were more or less political alliances than they were anything else. And uh, so it was like 700 wives, verse 3 says, and 300 concubines. And so that's a lot of people to be romantically committed to. Pastor Brady's joke is that that's like an average of three birthdays a day that you have to remember. A very difficult uh, work, King Solomon. So as Solomon grew old, but we're going to see that his wives are actually a bigger problem than just keeping up with birthdays. His wives, the scripture says, turned his heart. Everybody say turned his heart. After the other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. This is a problem as the heart of David his father had been. And he followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and he followed Molech, the detestable gods of the Am god of the Ammonites. And so Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He didn't follow the Lord completely, as his father David had done. And on a hill in east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. And he did the same for his foreign wives, who burned incense and they offered sacrifices to their gods. So there's a lot of gods that were worshiping apart from the one true God. And the Lord, verse 9, became angry with Solomon 
because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him two times. And although he had forbidden Solomon to follow their God, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and I will give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it during your lifetime, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. And then the Lord raised up against Solomon and, what does the text say, church? An adversary, I want you to remember that, Hadad, the Edomite from the royal line of Edom. Brothers and sisters, uh, this is the word of the Lord and all God's people said. And so we lift up our hearts to you, O Lord our God. We lift up our hearts to you. Solomon's story is not just Solomon's story, but Solomon's story is also our story. And we're in this, whether we like it or not. And so I pray that as we apply our hearts and our minds to what Solomon did and what Solomon didn't do, and what you did and what you didn't do in response to it, I pray that the prayer of the psalmist would come through that it would come true in us, that you would teach us your ways, that we may walk in your paths. We pray that you would give us an undivided heart that we would fear your name. Jesus, Son of the living God, we look to you this morning. We ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. We thank you that you are the one being spoken of in the scriptures. And so we pray that we would see your face and hear your voice, that we would know your character, and that we would rise up more fully as the people you have called us to be in you. Free us this morning from all that binds us. Help us throw off every weight, every entanglement, and all of the sins that trip us up in our lives. We pray that we would run in the path of your commands, like the psalmist said. For you have set our hearts free. Grant it, we pray. We say, may the words of the preacher's mouth and the meditation of the hearer's hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said. And so here is Solomon. Solomon has married all of these women. And all of a sudden the text of chapter 11 says that these wives begin to pull his heart away and he begins to worship other gods. And for Solomon, and the Lord is very displeased about this. And for Solomon, the Lord's displeasure about this should not have come as any kind of surprise. Just two chapters earlier... The second time the Lord appears to him in chapter 9, this is after the dedication of the temple and the palace, God appears to him and says this, Solomon, as for you, if you walk before me faithfully with integrity of heart and uprightness as David your father did, and if you do all I command and observe my decrees and my laws, I will establish your royal line over Israel forever as I promised David your father when I said you will never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel, verse 6. But if, everybody say but if, the conditional promise, but if you or your descendants turn away from me and don't observe my commands and decrees I've given you, and if you go off to other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land I've given them and reject this temple I've consecrated for my name. Uh, Israel that will then become a byword and an object of ridicule among all peoples. And this temple will become a heap of rubble and all who pass by will be appalled and they will scoff and they will say, why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this temple? This should not have come as a surprise to Solomon. 
Solomon to whom the Lord had given everything. Solomon to whom the Lord had handed over the entire kingdom. Solomon to whom when he asked God for wisdom, God gave him wisdom and not just wisdom, but everything besides. Solomon to whom God had said, if you just walk after me, I will establish this whole thing. Like you'll never fail to have a successor on the throne. Solomon to whom all of these promises had been given and Solomon to whom the Lord had also said, if you fail to walk after me, this whole thing will spin wildly out of control. Solomon should have known better. And even if the Lord had not said all of that stuff to Solomon, still what Solomon does here in chapter 11 is a violation of the first commandment of the Decalogue. Do you know it? I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. You shall have... I mean, this is not like a small piece of detail tucked away in the great contract between the Lord and his people. Like, oh, what? No other gods. Oh, geez. I wish that hadn't been in section 73.A, number section 2, whatever. It's the first thing. <laughs> it's the cornerstone of the whole deal. It's like, Solomon, if you don't remember anything else, if you don't remember the last nine of the Big Ten, and if you don't remember all of the little details that I've given you in the Decalogue like, well, uh, or in the rest of the Torah, like we've got that written down somewhere and you can refer to that, but please, Solomon, just remember this one. You shall have no other gods before you. And Solomon forsakes that first commandment and the kingdom begins to spin wildly into chaos. Yahweh makes good his word. Now, we might be sitting here this morning and we might be thinking to ourselves, okay, yeah, that's fine. But hey, this is the 21st century and we know so much better now. You know, the Lord kind of appeared to Solomon as a very rigid deity way back when and all of that. But now we know that all religious expressions are just various expressions of the one true religion of all things. And any name that we can give to God is but a faulty name for the one true deity out there. And of course, don't all roads lead to the same God? Right? And do you know what the Bible says to that? No, they don't. That worshiping idols, worshiping gods other than the one true God is a really huge problem for us. It's a moral problem. It's a spiritual problem. It's a social problem. So I'm going to title my message this morning, The Problem with Idolatry. This is a 101 on why we shouldn't worship idols, church. You ready for it this morning? Now, I know the other thing that you're sitting there thinking to yourself, you say, okay, the problem with idolatry, Andrew. But um, I just want you to know, Pastor, that it's been like a really, really long time since I've worshipped any idols. And if you come over to my house at any given day of the week, there is a 0% chance that you're going to see me in the backyard, bowed down before some wooden deity, slaughtering little bunnies that come along, you know, and offering them. And I'm glad to hear that, by the way. But that doesn't mean that you're free of the charge of idolatry. Here's what John Calvin said, the great reformer. He said that the human heart is a perpetual forge of idols. That means that we have this propensity internally to turn out idol after idol after idol. So it's a perpetual forge of idols. And Martin Luther, the other great reformer, said this, trying to define an idol. He said that whatever, <laughs> ooh, this is Luther just kind of pow, poking us here. Luther said that whatever you hang your heart on is your God. Yeah. So now we see that an idol can be anything. That it's not just Dashereth and Moloch and Chemosh and all of these gods, which I'll get to in a second. But anything that we hang our heart on is our God. And so you can hang your heart on lots of things. 
You can hang your heart on your money. You can hang your heart on your health. You can hang your heart on your vision of success. You can hang your heart on your job. You can hang your heart on your children or your lack thereof. You can hang your heart on your spouse or your lack thereof. You can hang your heart on, so you can hang your heart on your political ideology. You can? Yes, you can. You can hang your heart on your personal little theological positions and convictions that are your like pet doctrines. You can hang your heart on any one of those things. Anything that competes for your allegiance with the one true God is an idol in your life. So this is what I want you to do, church. I want you to think for 10 seconds or so here about what is that thing that I am tempted to hang my heart on that is not the Lord my God? (laughs) What's that thing that I'm constantly tempted to give my allegiance to that is constantly vying for my energy and my affection besides the living God? Because this is going to be a conversation between you and the Lord your God about that this morning. Whatever you hang your heart on is your God. So let me give you four propositions this morning on idolatry that will help hopefully get you free from those things that you hang your heart on. Number one, uh, all idolatry is an attempt to solve a practical problem. Did you know this? All idolatry is an attempt to solve a practical problem. Almost nobody, as far as I know, just kind of goes off and sort of contemplates deity in the abstract and goes, I think my God has X, Y, Z characteristics, and therefore I shall worship this God named X. No, the reason that we worship any given God, the reason that we give our allegiance to things, the reason that we hang our hearts on anything that is not the one true God is because it solves a practical problem for us in some way. Think about these gods that are listed here in 1 Kings chapter 11. Ashtoreth, you know what Ashtoreth was? She was a fertility goddess, fertility goddess. So why, if I'm living in the ancient Near East, would I worship a fertility goddess? Because I want my crops to bear fruit. And I want my livestock to be productive. And if the crops are bearing fruit and the livestock is productive, guess what that means? Super good for the national economy. So really what I'm doing here by worshiping Ashtoreth is I'm solving the practical problem of scarcity, right? Why would I worship Ashtoreth? Why would I worship Chemosh? Well, Chemosh is the god of war. And when I'm surrounded by all these strong and powerful nations that might have a little bit of beef with me, it might be that if I just give a little bit of allegiance to Chemosh, and mind you, I'm going to keep my allegiance to Yahweh, of course. It's just a little shrine to Chemosh that we're going to have over here. But if I give some of my allegiance to Chemosh over here, then maybe what that will do is that will ensure that my borders are safe. So national economy, national security, hey oh, <laughs> Now we're preaching this morning. Asherah, Chemosh, Molech is the god of death or the underworld, so far as we know from the evidence that we have. And so one of the great things that we face as human beings that cause us great sadness is the reality of death that is very scary for us. And also when death encroaches upon us, it severs us from our relationships with people that we care about. And so, of course, yes, I'm going to worship Yahweh over here. But maybe I could also give just a little bit of allegiance to Molech because that will save me from death or the underworld. All idolatry is an attempt to solve a practical problem. It's the stuff of our humanity. And the Lord knows this. Which is why he says in Psalm 81, riffing on the first commandment, the Lord says, hear me, my people, and I will warn you. If only you would listen to me, O Israel, verse 9, you shall have no foreign God among you. You shall not worship any God other than me, verse 10. Watch this. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Now I want you to finish that verse and say it real loud, church. 
So what's the Lord doing here? He's saying, I know why you worship Ashtoreth. And I know why you worship Chemosh. And I know why you worship Molech. So what I want you to know is that I, the Lord your God, am your all. I am your everything. And if you worship me, if you give your devotion and your allegiance to me, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Open, wide, your mouth, and I will fill it. Every need that you have, I am capable of satisfying, and I have promised to satisfy. Do you trust me? All idolatry is an attempt to solve a practical problem. I told a story earlier this year about a guy that I was friends with in college. He was a wonderful guy. We worked at this restaurant together, had such a good time together, vibrant guy, beautiful personality, super intelligent, so much fun to be around. But he had this thing, this like tendency that I started noticing in the few years that we were friends, that more and more as like the months and the years went by, he just was like constantly talking about money. You know, he's like, you know, when I get out of here and I finish all this up, I got these plans, I'm going to do this thing, and I'm going to make a whole bunch of money in my life. And I was like, wait, great, cool, man, that's awesome. He was like, no, and so I got this, and just always like money, 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 money. And then somebody at one point put in his hands uh, the book by the author Robert Kiyosaki, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. You ever seen this book? And he became obsessed with this book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Like it was all about like, hey, I don't want to be just a consumer, but like I want to be a person that has assets and I want to be a person that's like built up my empire and I've got strength and I've got wealth and I've got riches, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I kid you not, he became like an evangelist for Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And it was one of those things where it was like, dude, I like you, but like this is engulfing your personality and it's getting so annoying if you just knock it off. And so he invited him and his wife invited Mandy and I over for dinner one night. And so we went over to their apartment and we had such a nice time and he cooked this like beautiful meal and we really enjoyed our whole like experience with them up until they cleared the table. And his name was Aaron and Aaron said, hey, does anybody want to play a game? And we were like, yes, games are great. This is our first time hanging out with you. It's a good way to like keep the vibes of the night going. So let's play a game. So many good games out there, you know, Scattergories or Scrabble or Popomatic Trouble, you know, I mean... No, did you not? None of you were around in the 80s for Popomatic Trouble? It's all right. I see you back there, Chad Ryden. Thank you. Appreciate it. So you know what he pulls out? I kid you not. He clears the table. He pulls out Rich Dad, Poor Dad, the board game. It's like I felt unclean. It's like I would have almost preferred that you brought out like Dungeons and Dragons or a Ouija board or something. It's like I will not enter into an agreement with this thing. But it's so, but you know what we found out? about him as the years went by was that the reason that he was so obsessed with money was because of something in his narrative, something in his story. And when he was growing up, his dad was a traveling evangelist, minister, and they always lived hand to mouth. Always. Month after month after month, never quite knowing where the money was going to come from, never quite knowing where provision was going to come from, never quite knowing how they were going to make ends meet and always just kind of living by the skin of their teeth. And so my friend, you know what he did? He made an inner vow. I am never going back there again. So far as it depends on me, I'm taking care of myself. I'm taking care of my family. I'm going to make sure that we always have money in the bank. Idolatry is always an attempt to meet what? A practical need. That's why we give our hearts to other things. The big question is, do we actually trust God? Do we trust God with our money? 
Do we trust God with our relationship status? Do we trust God with our sexuality? Do we trust God with our relationships? Do we trust God with this country? Do we trust God? Or are we going to just take matters into our own hands and make stuff happen because we're impatient with how God is handling things? Idolatry is always an attempt to solve a practical problem. Do we trust God? I love that. I'm sitting looking at Danny Schoenfeld over here. Danny got up and he gave a testimony a few weeks ago here in the service. If you were here, you heard him say it. But Danny, about a year and a half ago, was going through a tough time, had some back issues, had to have back surgery, so he's out of work for a few months. Fortunately, they gave him medical leave, which was nice, but he's getting his back like rehabbed and put back together again. He goes back to his work. He's there for, what, a few weeks or something like that? Five, six days, six weeks. He's back there for six weeks, and he's trying to do good work and get back into the flow of things. And they go, hey, buddy, we're downsizing. We're scaling back. We love you. Uh, here's a little severance check and a pink slip. Hit the road, Jack. So what? So about a year ago, Danny is standing in one of our services here, and he's thinking about the road ahead and all of the uncertainty, and he feels the Lord lay upon his heart. Hey, Danny, why don't you go ahead and tithe off the severance check? He's like, I, what? Why? But I thought that, you know, like in my understanding, like tithing is what you do is you tithe off of the increase, the extra that comes in. And this isn't really extra. This is like tithing off of my life raft is what this is. This is like me pulling planks out of the boat and giving them to you. It seems like really impractical. God, are you sure? And in the middle of that conversation, the Lord goes, how about you tithe not just off the net, but off the gross? He goes, stop, you're being really irrational here, you know, and impractical, Lord. Will you trust me? Will you trust me? So Danny writes a check. And he gets up and he gives a testimony a few weeks ago. And says that in the last year he's had more work than he knows what to do with. So much work that he's having to turn down work. I, could you just take this verse and tuck it in your heart? I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Did I do that just to let you starve to death out in the wilderness? You think that's why I did that? You think that's why I showed my righteous right hand and my holy arm and why I humbled Pharaoh? I did that just to send you out into this barren wasteland and let you die? Do you think that's why I did this? No. I'm the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Church, would you please finish it for me? Open and I will fill it. Do we trust God to meet our needs? Number one. Number two, I'll say this to you about idolatry, is that all idolatry carries hidden fees. There's like an audible mumble out here. <laughs> I hate hidden fees. Terrible. It's one of the signs of the fall, I think, in our world. It's hidden fees, hidden fees everywhere. You know, you sign up for this, you sign up for that, and you think it's going to cost this much, and it actually winds up costing so much more. About seven or eight years ago, my family and I we were driving out to California for a little vacation. Actually, I think we were driving back from California on this part. Of it. And we were going through Nevada. We were driving through Nevada in mid to late July. Do you know how hot it is in Nevada in mid to late July? It is 187 degrees every single day. It was so hot. And when you're driving through there, it's like driving through the land of Mordor. It's like driving through the seventh circle of hell. It was so hot. And I'm not even kidding about this. Pieces of our van literally melted off while we were driving. And so as you're going through a state, and by the way, if you're from Nevada, I didn't mean to insult you by saying that, but you're living in a much better place now. And the Lord has been very kind to you and you need to thank him every day. And we're driving through Nevada and you're just hoping to God that you don't have to stop because it's very scary and you're just not sure what's going to happen. But we did. We ran out of gas and we had to stop. 
at this gas station. So we pull into the gas station, and I'm very hungry. And so I walk into the convenience store. And in the convenience store, they were selling these little power bars. And I do like power bars. And they were charging $3 for power bars. And that seems exorbitant to me. Power bars are just like what? Like whey protein and peanut butter or something? Come on, man. Like $3, but whatever. Like I'm hungry, and I'm willing to pay that price for the power bar. So I grab the power bar. And I take it to the counter. And I lay it in front of the lady there. And she, da, 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 and she rings me up and she goes, sir, that will be $4.50. And I said, what $4.50? I said, that thing over there where I grabbed it from, it said that it was $3. And she said, oh, yeah, but sir, uh, it's a $1.25 convenience fee. And so, like, I'm a generally pretty easygoing guy, but, like, little stuff really bothers me. <laughs> and I said to her, I'm not even kidding about this. I said, I said, lady, this is a convenience store. <laughs> Everything in this place is a convenience fee. That's the whole thing. You don't get to charge me two convenience fees. There's one, there's one convenience, <laughs> there's one convenience fee. That's it. That's the $3 is the convenience fee. If you want to charge me $4.50, just say $4.50. But you don't get to do that. That's, that's what idolatry is, though. Idolatry is like, it costs this much. And then you go to pay for it, and you find out that there are convenience fees. You think that it's going to give you all of this, but it actually takes away from you more than it ever gives you. Think again about these gods that we talked about here in 1 Kings chapter 11. Asherah, she may promise fertility, but you know what she requires? Temple prostitution. So yeah, I'll make your land fertile. And I'll make your crops productive, and I'll make all of your livestock, they'll bear lots of stuff, but um, the price of that is going to be the degradation of your community's sexuality. You willing to pay that? Asterisk. Chemosh. Price of chemosh. Oh yeah, I'll protect you from your enemies and I'll keep you safe from all of that, but the price of that is going to be human sacrifice. So I will keep lives safe here, some lives safe here. Other lives are going to have to suffer for that, that's what Chemosh requires in Molech, one of the most detestable gods in Israelite religion. Uh, Molech, oh yeah, I'll protect you from the underworld and from death and the severing of your relationships and all that. All I require is your firstborn kid. All idolatry carries hidden fees. And when we worship gods that are not the Lord our God, what we find in the long run is that they take so much more from us than they ever give. All idolatry carries hidden fees. Think about after the city of Jerusalem is left in rubble, it's completely burned to ash. Jeremiah the prophet, who some people think might have written 1 Kings, writes this in the book of Lamentation. He says, How deserted lies the city, once so full of people. How like a widow is she who is once great among the nations. She who is queen among the provinces has now become a slave. Bitterly she weeps at night. Tears are upon her cheeks. Among all her lovers, there is no one to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. I think there's another slide, right? No, they haven't. She worshipped all of these other deities. Tears are upon her cheeks. And then when she wakes up and she starts looking around for the other gods, they are nowhere to be found. They took everything from her. All idolatry carries hidden fees. This happens on every level of human society. I think about... The story of the German nation in the last century. After World War I, so insulted by the way the world community treated them, and devastated the economic costs, the social costs of World War I. You know what happened in Germany? The German people made an agreement within themselves that that kind of thing will never happen to us. 
So what are we going to do? We're going to make German blood great again, and we're going to make German soil, the German nation great again. And they elevated those values above all other values. And we know how that story ends, don't we? That somehow the promise is that everything is going to be amazing if we just do this thing. And God is not opposed to any ethnicity's blood being great or any soil being great. It's just that. When you elevate that value over all other values, when you refuse to submit that value to the worship of the one true God, it always carries hidden fees. My friend, who I told you about earlier, the rich dad, poor dad guy, we lost touch with him and his wife over the years and decided on Facebook a couple years ago, we were like, let's do a little Facebook research and see how they're doing. Here's a guy who gave himself over to the worship of wealth, the worship of money. And when we looked for them on social media, we could not find them together. And of course, a picture, you can't, you don't know all the details, but a picture does tell a thousand words. And when we found her picture, she is in the picture happily with their three daughters and she is remarried to somebody else. And he, in his little Facebook profile picture, is leaning back against a brand new BMW. So bud, you got what you wanted. Was it worth it? All idolatry carries hidden fees. And I wonder about you. I wonder what you're holding right now. I wonder what is the thing that you're hanging on to, that you're kind of just gazing at this thing and you're going, ah, yes. I know what the Lord my God requires. I know what following Jesus requires of me. But gosh, dang it, I really need this thing. And if I just make some little compromises here, if I just cut some little corners here, I'll keep worshiping Jesus, I'll keep showing up on Sunday, but maybe I can erect a little shrine over here to my hope for being married one day. Or maybe I can erect a little shrine over here to my need to be liked by my children. Or maybe I can erect a little shrine over here to being, need, need, being needed to be included in that in-group over there at work. And if I just do these things to get in that in-group, that will make me feel a little bit more safe in my career because it doesn't seem like Jesus is really keeping... I, what is the thing for you? And I wonder if you can just rest yourself, rest your heart in the truth of Psalm 81, that I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. All idolatry is an attempt to meet a practical problem. All idolatry carries hidden fees. Number three... When we give ourselves over to idolatry, what does God do? God opposes us. Thank God for that, by the way. That when we get to the place in our lives where we're kind of a runaway freight train with our idolatry, God doesn't just stand idly by and let it happen. Look at verse 14 again. The scripture says, Then the Lord, after all of this idolatry and worshiping other gods and departing from the religion of the one true God, what does the scripture say? Then the Lord raised up against Solomon. A what? Who raised up the adversary? Who raised it up? God raised up against Solomon, an adversary. And not just one. But as you read the rest of the book of 1 Kings chapter 11, you find that God has actually raised up three different adversaries to come against Solomon. I want to ask you a question this morning, church. Is God love? Oh, yes. Are all of God's actions love? Then what was the motive for these actions? Love. There is nothing that God does in this world that is not motivated first and finally by love. All of God's actions are love. And so here is God, as Solomon is giving himself over to the worship of these other gods, working behind the scenes to raise up adversaries. 
Apparently, this is an expression of God's love in the world. Why would God do this? I want to give you two reasons. Number one, I think that God does this to Solomon and he does it to us. Number one, to limit our evil. Solomon at this point is running the greatest empire the world has ever seen. And that is not a bad thing. All of that authority, all of that power, all of that privilege is not a bad thing. So long as Solomon uses all of that power and that authority and that privilege in the service of the one true God. But if all of a sudden Israel becomes animated by Ashtoreth and Chemosh and Molech, now Israel is an incredibly dangerous place. In fact, Israel is not at all unlike Egypt out of which they were delivered many centuries earlier. And so God has a moral obligation in the world to limit Solomon's evil by raising up adversaries against him. Number one. Number two, I think that God does it to provoke our what, church? He does it to provoke our repentance. What does God's opposition of us look like? Let me give you three things, and then with this, we're going to go to the table. This is what God's opposition of us look like. Number one, he does it by bringing about the sting of conscience. That we start departing from the ways that he has called us to live, and all of a sudden our heart begins to bear witness against us. What are you doing? Don't walk that way. You know that disaster lies along that road. Come back, worship the Lord, get humble, submit yourselves again to Jesus Christ. The first way that God opposes us in our lives is by bringing the sting of conscience to us. And so if you feel the sting of conscience, church, do you know what you're supposed to do? I know you know it. Do you know it? Say it loud, church. (laughs) And the sooner the better. The sooner the better. Every day, every moment, the great mystics, the ancients of the church, the holiest people in the church, have always been people that walked around beating their chest. God have mercy on me. God have mercy on me. A sinner... The psalmist in Psalm 119, after waxing eloquent, 176 verses on desiring to walk in the way of the Lord and on his determination to give himself over to the way of the Lord. You know how Psalm 119 ends? The psalmist says, I have strayed like a lost sheep. Seek me, O God. There's got to be something in us that does that over and over and over again. God, I've strayed like a lost sheep. God, I am so prone, that old song, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Do you know that song? That's our hearts, prone to wander. And when we feel the sting of conscience, get humble before the Lord, number one. Number two, the way that the Lord opposes us is by bringing the voices of others to us. The voices of others. People in your life who are saying, hey, I don't know about, I love you, I love you, I love you. You're my guy, you're my girl. But I don't think that that thing that you're doing is the right thing. And I think that you're going to hurt yourself, and I think that you're going to hurt the people around you, and I think you're going to hurt your children. And so please, 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 please just stop what you're doing. Please reconsider. When the voices of others come to you, you know what you're supposed to do, church? I know you know it. Yeah, you didn't, well, you weren't like super convincing on that. When the voices of others come against you to remind you of the way of God, what should you do? Listen. And then after you've listened, it starts with the letter R. Repent. <laughs> Get right as fast as possible. By the way, another place in which, oh boy, I'm going long. Another place in which the voices of others come against us is when we are in a position of authority and those who work underneath us or report to us voice their little concerns 
about how they're being treated, do you understand that power dynamics make it so that most people will never voice the fullness of their concern? They'll always just offer you little hints and suggestions. And if you're not listening to it or if you're proud and stubborn and arrogant, you know what you'll do? How could you? How dare you come against me in that way? This is Satan's opposition of my leadership and my authority. Oh, is it? Or maybe, verse 14, the Lord raised up against Solomon a what? It might be that when your subordinates are saying to you, hey, you're being a little bit rough, you're being a little bit mean, hey, you're going kind of fast, that might just be the voice of the living God calling you to repentance. And so if you hear those voices, church, listen. But if we blow by our conscience and we blow by our relationships, there's one final thing that God can do, and he will bring the fruit of bitter consequence to us. He will allow us to taste the consequences of our actions. And when that begins to happen, church, what should we do? I know that you know it by now. Repent. God is not a God who just leaves us as we are, but when we repent, he puts things back together again. Think about King David. After the heinous thing that he did with Bathsheba, murdering Uriah this whole, and lying about it, this whole disgusting episode, God forgives him and restores as much to him as he can restore. Why? Because David repented and got humble. Solomon here in this chapter is opposed three times by three different people. And do you know what Solomon does different than King David? Instead of submitting, instead of humbling himself, the scripture says at the end of 1 Kings chapter 11 that Solomon went out and tried to kill his adversaries. By the way, who raised up against Solomon the adversaries? God did it. And so by trying to murder the adversaries, Solomon is trying to murder God. I don't want you as part of my life anymore. Go away. And Solomon, for all his glory, for all his splendor, for all his wisdom, dies an apostate king because he was trying to solve practical problems in a way that didn't involve the God who said, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Open wide your mouth. So then the offer to us today, church, is do we trust that that's true? Would you stand this morning? Repentance is a heavy word, but it's also a freedom word. It's a joy word. And this morning, we have all been confronted in some way with worship that we have been offering to gods that are not God. Gods that have no ears, they are deaf. Gods that have no eyes, they can't see. Gods that have no feet, they can't walk. Gods that can't utter a sound with their throats. And the psalmist says elsewhere, those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. When we worship idols, it depraves our humanity. We lose our ability to see, to hear, to walk, to love, to speak. But when we worship the living God, when we lay down our devotion to idols, when we worship the God who can hear and can see and can walk and can feel and can speak, we become like him. 
We become more human. And so Jesus, I'm asking this day right now that you would break our allegiance to other gods. Everywhere where we have been tempted to serve money, to serve sex, to serve power, to serve relationships, to serve anything that's not you, break it, break it. And we're asking that freedom would come back in this house. We're asking that joy would come back in this house. And we're asking that as we serve you, Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, the one true God, the God who is the bread of life given for us, the God who is the life of God poured out for us, well, we ask that we would recover our lives because we bent the knee to King Jesus. And so we remember, Lord Jesus, before you, that on the night that you were betrayed, after you had given thanks, you took the bread and you broke it and you gave it to your disciples. And you said, take this, all of you, and eat. This is my body. It's broken for you. Uh, Do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, you took the cup, saying, drink from this, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the remission of sins. Do it whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So Jesus, we offer bread and cup before you this morning. And we are hungry and we are thirsty and we are needy. It's you that we're looking for. And so we ask that you would give your body to us in the bread, and we ask that you would give your blood to us in the cup, and we ask that we would be renewed as sons and daughters of the living God here at the table. Granted, we pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, amen. I'm going to invite our servers to come forward to serve communion this morning. Communion is on my right. And on my left up front here, as you come up the center aisle, you'll receive a cracker in your hand, dip it in the cup, and take it as you head back to your seat. Brothers and sisters, I say to you, these are the gifts of God given for the people of God. Come forward and receive communion.
Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. One more time, church, before we go. I want you to put all of your trust in Jesus right now. Jesus, we're pushing all of our chips to the middle of the table. We're putting all of our eggs in your basket. We're pinning all of our hopes to you. If you don't come through for us, we're hosed. If you don't deliver for us, we will not be delivered. But that's a bet we're willing to take because of how you have proved yourself across the centuries, how you have proved yourself to your people, and how you have proved yourself to us. The psalmist said, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. And this morning, we remember the deeds of the Lord. I was young and now I'm old, said the psalmist. I've never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. We're pinning all of our hopes to you. And we trust you. Church, lift up your hands like this. Receive this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. God, may he bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. May you know in your bones that God is for you and not against you, and that you can trust him. I'm praying all that over you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, amen. Hey, this one thing I forgot to mention today, this last song that we sang here is from a new batch of songs that we've written at New Life that we are recording this Wednesday. At the main building, 6.30 p.m., live recording of a whole new batch of worship songs. And we've been singing some of them around here, so a lot of them will be familiar to you. If you happen to come on Wednesday night, try to sit in section 11. That's where, like, New Life East kind of tends to sit. Then you'll see a lot of friendly faces, and your friendships will go deeper, and it'll be so amazing. So we'll see you there at 6.30 p.m. Remember to sign up for retreats out in the lobby. Uh, If you're new, you can come and see us in the lobby at Connect Central. Join us for Fellowship Hour Coffee and Donuts. Go. Oh, and if you need prayer for anything, we'd love to pray with you. 
altar ministry team. Oh, and also, I got, sorry, one more thing I got to mention. Hey, Connor Hodges, would you run up here real quick? Come on, give it up for Connor Hodges. Thank you. He who finds a wife finds what is good and receives favor from the Lord. Connor Hodges has been running our AV Tech team for the last year. This is his last Sunday with us. He's accepted a big job out in Nashville, Tennessee. Him and his new wife, Rachel, are going to be moving out there in the next week or so. So can you extend your hands their direction? And let's pray for these guys. We want to receive people well and send people well. And so we thank you for the deposit that Connor has left here, God. Thank you that he is the head and not the tail. He is above and not beneath. Thank you that the enemies that come at him in one direction will flee from him in seven because God is for him and not against him. Thank you that you are paving the way for him, that you're making a life for him and Rachel. Thank you that they're going to flourish in that new place. And so we send them now in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit with blessings on their heads. If you agree with that, church, can you say a real loud amen? Amen. Give it up one more time for Connor Hodges. Okay, that's enough. We've kept you very long. Not that long. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. We'll see you in fellowship out real soon.